Coming up next, what are we reading, Brandon? Emma. By who, Brandon? J.A. herself. J.A., and what does that stand for? Jane Austen. Jane Austen, the woman, the womith, the... Texas named their capital after her. <laughs> is, that who, is, that, is that why they named it Austin? I think so. <laughs> Welcome to the Bookening. My name is Nathan Alberson, your humble, obedient, and very quiet host. I'm also sucking on a mental cough drop right now because this episode's kind of weird where that we all have sore throats. Brandon's a pre-diabetic. I don't have a sore throat. I just can't avoid sugar. Just, We've already established that. <laughs> We've already established that. Jake had the mother of all frogs in his throat, which he has before on the podcast. But this time we just wanted to, it's 2017, we wanted to bring you some extra quality. And so that's what we're doing. We're, we're going to NPR style now. Yeah, exactly. We're just, we're just going to talk like hipsters that just smoked a bunch of pot. This is Brandon Chastain. I'm going to tell you about Emma. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, folks. Welcome to our first uh, first episode of Austin Month here. But Austin Month is a is a prized month for me because I love Jane Austen. It's a prized month for Brandon. I think brings a tear to his eye because of his home state, which is of course Brandon, Texas, and the capital of Texas, Austin. And we we've established they named it after Jane Austen. Yep. Misspelled it, though, because they're Texans. Yep. That's right. <laughs> if you could see the disgusting look of Brandon on Brandon's face. <laughs> Folks, we're recording this late again, just like we always do lately, but we're going to bring you some quality discussion of Jane Austen, and I know we are because we're joined by two wonderful people and myself, um, but the two wonderful people are, oh, and I, I, I do want to apologize for last week's episode where I said that Howl was by Ker, uh, Jack Kerouac. I said Did Howl was, Yeah. I was, I was trying to make a crummy joke, and I was trying to pull it real fast, and so I pulled it, and I said... I said Hal by Kerak, and I, um, it worked, but I was a little ashamed. Hal is, of course, by Ginsburg. Yes. So I apologize for that. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> I, I know. I know all of <laughs> I just wanted to avoid the letters and emails, guys. They're already starting to pour in. I knew, I knew our fans would be angry at me. They, they come to this quality for they come to this quality for podcast guys <laughs> anyway i'm joined i bring the podcast the people that bring the quality there's two of them one and then two number one i i call him jake menzel pastor jake menzel he's the pastor who's what master- my parents call me <laughs> thing one and thing two thing one and thing two your parents call you jake menzel why well, taking after your parents taking following your parents lead i call you jake menzel and i welcome you to austin month jake Thank you, Nathan. I'm excited to be here, to be a part of Austin Month. I, too, am a Jane Austen fan. Uh, and we are also joined by, I'm hoping, another Austin fan. We'll find out here in a second when I ask him. His name is Brandon Chastine, Ph.D., ABD. Yeah, I'm an Austin fan, and you're wonderful, too. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Me and Jane Austen are, like, on the top <laughs> yeah. of your list. Yeah, made for each other. <laughs> yeah. I do think that me and Jane Austen are made for each other. And if she's listening, if she's <laughs> crawled from, out of from that grave. the grave. <laughs> yeah. You know what I realized didn't happen at all during our last two episodes, the poetry episodes, was Brandon Pull. I just burped. <laughs> Brandon Pull. <laughs> uh, Brandon didn't pull out those pistols and uh, fire them off and say yeehaw and give us some context. Did I not? <laughs> For the poetry? No, I don't think oh, so. Okay. So you probably should. Oh, you. <laughs> yeah what happened to your guns man <laughs> they're not shooting they're rusty <laughs> oh i think they're rusty because we've already shot these shells before oh yes yeah my gun knows it's been used on austin before that's true one of the booking rules is that we have to reuse shells <laughs> <laughs> for any author that we for any author <laughs> that we're coming back I thought to you're just gonna say it's been rusty because it's been a couple episodes since you've used them but and it's also been a couple episodes except for when i've i have gone down to the border to help out trump yeah, that's good that's good every texas is texan has been called back <laughs> building that wall baby Building that wall baby <laughs> 
making America great again. Oh yeah, forget that. In any case, it's, it's contextual text, and Brandon is in fact wearing a red, a red uh, uh, "Make America Great" hat. He's firing off his pistols right now. He's gonna make America great by introducing us to another classic work of literature. Now, Brandon has already talked about Austin, Jane Austen, before in our Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice, Pride and Prejudice, Pride and. Prejudice. Pride, pride and Prejudice. In our Pride and Precious episode, uh, which which you can listen to, very first episode we did, little, uh, we were green at the time, but uh, since then we've become amazing. In any case, uh, if you want to hear some stuff about Austin, that's a good place to start. But Brandon, uh, what do you want to say about Emma and Jane Austen and all that good stuff? Well, I don't think it would hurt to recap a few things about I don't Jane Austen. I think it would hurt at all. In fact, it would be very pleasant. Would it? And I hope that you do. Well, as we all know, Jane Austen is... Most famous for being Nathan's favorite authoress. Definitely. Or maybe author. Authoress. Maybe favorite author. I love her. To position her where she is now that we've had a whole year of novels and we've just talked about poetry, where she is is she's right at the kind of the birth of the novel as a form, right at the end of the 1700s. She's in what's considered to be kind of a classical period of literature, not a lot of experiment with form, a lot of craft for craft's sake. So uh, probably right before her would be Alexander Pope. And he's really known for just being a craftsman with poetry. And she's very similar to that. She's she's a craftswoman. She's not really um, doing a lot of the experimentation you're going to see with poetry just around the corner. I mean, the romantics wouldn't be too much long after her. In fact, they were kind of writing right as she was ending the near nearing the end of her career. So that's that's important because a lot of people admire Jane Austen, and I don't think we talked about this a lot last time, but they admire Jane Austen for just the form and the craft of her novels, for how beautifully structured they are, and yet how artless it seems at times, too, because the narrative doesn't seem to be as meticulously detailed as it actually is. And so... They were admired for that? Oh, she's admired for that, yeah. She'll take these themes and these ideas and she'll weave them throughout the novel. So you have Pride and Prejudice. The famous one is Pride and Prejudice become the theme of that novel. But if you think of Emma, very early on, she... No, no, no. Very early, what, what I was thinking of is very early on, Mr. Knightley says that he thought that it would be good for her to one day have heartbreak and to understand, and then she would mature. And then that's what happens throughout the novel. You don't really realize that's playing out with Churchill, but it does. And so she just uses these things, but it doesn't seem like Mr. Knightley's just pausing and telling you a plot point. Like I said, it seems artless, and yet it's there. And if you really, if you go back and look at the form of her novels and the way that they take shape and the way that they play out, it really is, it's, it's amazing. And with Emma, you have the three acts, and each act plays out... I think it's three parts, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in each act plays it's a central role and it takes a very sort of classical structure and approach to telling the story. And yet what's um I guess maybe groundbreaking about her or at least unique about her is the way that she has so much insight, Shakespearean insight into character. She brought this not just potboiler fiction, but fiction that was both driving towards a plot and an end. Um, that very Aristotelian sense of needing to have action and the action take you somewhere and it unravels, and <clears throat> but also um, a focus on the characters and the characters' insights. And so her narrative style, I th- and I think we touched on this with the other um, summary of it, Austin, but her narrative style, this third person indirect style that she has, where at one point she's telling the story, but then suddenly you'll be from the perspective of the character. This is actually pretty revolutionary as far as the novel goes because it it opens up the way that an author can play with tone. And so at one point, she, Jane Austen, can be telling us the story, but then suddenly it's actually from Emma's perspective. And it shifts without us really realizing it's shifting. The, the, a lot of times in the novel, it'll be set off by, just so people know how, where to look for it, it'll be set off by dashes and exclamation points. It'll have things like, what a blunder, or what a terrible mistake that had been, will suddenly be in her thoughts, but we won't. it won't be in italics, it won't be in quote, quotation marks. Austin will just freely move back and forth between Emma's point of view and her the omniscient narrator's point of view in a way where sometimes you're not even quite sure which one is being represented. Yeah, or just take any paragraph. Like, contrary to the usual course of things, Mr. Elton's wanting to pay his addresses to her. It sunk him into her opinion. His professions and his proposals did him no service. And so what's really fun and intriguing about Austin is that it begin, It gets to the point where you don't know if Austin's telling us these things as fact or if it's also colored by Emma's understanding of things too. Mm-hmm. And so like 
She thought nothing of his attachment and was insulted by his hopes. He wanted to marry well, and having the arrogance to raise his eyes to her, pretended to be in love. So right there, you don't know, is that Austin telling us that he had that arrogance, or is this Emma thinking that he had this arrogance? And then it, it's just... And she really does play with, with that. You see that in Pride and Prejudice, how we actually get, for the first half of the novel, Lizzie's perspective. And Darcy is presented to us as somebody who's cold and proud and nasty. And it's not until uh, Lizzie has her revelation, the letter comes, that we get to see a bigger picture of what's actually going on with Darcy as a reader, because her narrative style is so intermixed with with Lizzie, and we see the same kinds of things happen. Yeah, so uh, probably one of the clearest points in this novel is when she's trying to convince Harriet that Elton is in love with her and her confusions and th- and we know what's going on but Emma has no clue and those third what seems to be omniscient narratives are actually then mixed in with Emma's thoughts and it uh, like I said it allows for a lot of flexibility with the narrative style would be adopted by novelists for a long up till today really people are still doing this yeah, I think it's one of those things that as a modern reader, it's it was revolutionary for its time and you do not notice it at all because you're simply just used to it in modern novels. I mean, you read really any modern novel and they'll do that all the time where they're they're shifting points of view, giving you the author's perspective, but not, or, or rather giving you the character's perspective, but it's from third person. It's not set off in quotation marks. It's not, you know, put in a little thought bubble. It's just, you read any random pot boiler from the supermarket now and you'll see, you know, Jack Reacher looked around the corner. It was very suspicious looking, whatever. I'm not a good enough writer to come up with an amazing Jack Reacher scene, but that sort of thing is just ubiquitous in, in most fiction now, uh, certainly in most of the 20th first or the twentieth century fiction that we read, but it was not ubiquitous in Austin's time. And Yeah, so go through her novel and try to find where she says she thought or she pondered or any of these things, and she doesn't use those sort of... You do see that. I mean, yeah. you'll get like a monologue in quotes, like yeah. where you, where you would you get direct thought, but then a lot of it will be, like you said, just Mr. Elton's arrogance, and you don't really know whether that's the omniscient narrator, and Austin's kind of dancing into Emma's head and then dancing out of it. Yeah, and so the, fl- the value of that is it immerses you more in the world. Like we've said with Shakespeare, you can be immersed in a Shakespeare play, but you know you're reading a play, and it really comes to life when you can be immersed in his world by watching it on stage. And that's kind of what she's able to do with her novel is bring it to life for you. So you feel like you're both in their thoughts, but also watching it happen. And so you get the wonders of it all. So she, yeah, so she was doing this and then in the in the late 1800s. And then after her, the novel would take off. You would get the romantic period and then you'd get Dickens and everything would change. We talked a lot about who she was last time. She was a simple, she, her status in society was... She was the daughter of a country gentleman. And I think it's useful to go back over the hierarchical nature of British society at the time, because it's all over Emma. Really, where you were born in life was where you were meant to stay in life. Education was built around it. Your available options for marriage and also for a job that was built around it. And so you could be born into the gentility or you could be born into the peasantry. And there really wasn't much mobility beyond that. Then of course, even within, and we saw this, this is very similar to what you see in Anna Karenina with Tolstoy. Even when you get into the gentility, there's hierarchy within that. And so you have your nobles who are around the court. And I don't think we ever really see anybody like that with Jane Austen's characters, do we? Well, I guess Lady... Lady Catherine? Yeah, from Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. is the closest we ever get to that. So Darcy, to an extent, would have been that. So you have your nobility who are around the court, then you have your landed gentry, and even be below them, you have sort of your country squires and pa- um, not pastors, but parsons, what would they have called them? Clergy. Clergymen, yeah. There we go. And so they all have their ranks and they all have their positions. Then beneath them, you would have your schoolmasters, your governesses, your merchants. It was all sort of shifting and changing at this time, which makes it mildly interesting your merchants were beginning to become a new sort of landed gentry because of their money is that like mr um her governor the governess's husband mr um weston mr weston yeah mr weston is very much that Mm -hmm. and so they made their money and he also married into money but the merchant class was really beginning to change sort of this gentry model but 
it was still there. And then you also had your soldiers. Then beneath them, you had your working class. And you had hierarchy even there. But the thing was, is you weren't meant to or expected to go from one class to another. And that's very much the comedy of Emma, is she thinks that Harriet Smith really should she was born into the working class and yet she thinks that she deserves to be um better than she is when she has to she has to create a myth about about harriet yeah in order to justify it in her own mind surely she was actually born of a gentleman a gentleman's daughter and everybody yeah. knows that couldn't possibly be the case but she has to convince herself of that in order to convince herself <laughs> that harriet belongs yep. in her sphere but then you do have some flexibility with the Westons, with Jane Fairfax. Yeah, I was about to say. So that, but you do see some flex. You s- with Frank Churchill, even in a weird way. I don't know. Yeah, and what's it based on? It's largely based on beauty and also character. So what Knightley keeps saying about Harriet, and though he changes his opinion somewhat of her, is that she just doesn't have the chops. Yeah, the chops. She doesn't have the personality or the character that Jane Fairfax has. She doesn't have the class. She doesn't have the class. Yeah. <laughs> He matches her with, uh, who's it? Mr. Roger Martin. 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 Mr. Yep. Martin. But there he sort of, at least at the beginning of the novel, says that Roger Martin is much better than she deserves. Even she'd be doing well to get Roger Martin. Yeah, well, he, he clearly thinks very highly of Mr. Martin in his yeah. place and sphere. And so the novel is playing around with these ideas of sphere and expectations. And so we see it with Jane very clearly because she has the option of either marrying Frank Churchill, which will be an improvement in her station, even though we kind of get the sense that she was raised, who were her benefactors? I forget their names. But, but they were yeah, wealthy. She, and they, right. But it was seen as a tragedy that she would be raised by this compassionate family of benefactors who were then going to have to basically sell her into slavery because there was nothing else that yeah. they could do. And so the novel also shows us the options that women had versus men. And so obviously a lot of critics today are pick up on that and run and run with it. And they they had the option to either marry or become a governess. And becoming a governess, even though you were a governess usually for a gentry family, you would not be seen as gentry. You were a governess. That would mark your position in society. That's that's who you would be. You would be the governess. You might be loved. They might treat you well. A little bit like Mammy in the South kind of. Uh, yeah, or you might end up being the object of like the French governess in uh, Anna Karenina, mm-hmm. right? Which is a trope for a reason. Yeah. Right happened mm-hmm. and also uh, what's the famous oh jane r jane air however you yeah. 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 say it uh-huh. <laughs> and so yeah that, that and being a governess was by no means an improvement in your position and so that helps understand why jane isn't excited about the option and why it seems to her to be kind of selling out there at the end if she has to do this and um even and it says a lot about Mrs. Elton too. That this is what she's trying to push Jane into. So those were the options, and I should point out that uh, Jane Austen herself did a third option, which was she did not marry and she relied on the support of her brothers and her family, and um, I think perhaps had a little bit of Miss Bates' experience in that she things went downhill. Or, or I think I think she started out better than she ended. Um, I think that's true. But 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 she was always, you know, she, she always had family and enough to eat and all that sort of thing. But yeah, she wasn't going to go out and get a job at McDonald's. She, she, she... The world was closed to women and it was just awful. Mm. It was a dark time. <laughs> a dark time. That glass that's the ceiling... Star Wars scroll at the beginning of <laughs> yeah, the... Yeah, it was a dark time. time for women. The glass ceiling was not just... <laughs> Unbroken. The glass ceiling was. The world was a glass ceiling. I don't know. (laughs) Poor Jane had to live in a world of virtuous men who would allow her to care for her nieces and nephews and write her books and never have to worry about her living instead of allowing her to go out and get a job and I know put yeah, poor bread Jane, on her she own just table. had to write the sixth greatest novels. Man, it's just awful. Language, yeah. They treated her like a woman. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's awful. <laughs> so she didn't even have a place of her own. Mm-hmm. No. Room of her own. She room of her own, own right. I know. Had to write in the room with her nephews annoying her and it's awful. But hey, even without a room of her own, she learned to write like think of a how hundred much, times better than Virginia Woolf ever did. Think, yeah. think of how much greater her insight into human nature would be if she had been allowed to go out and work at right. McDonald's. Or, oh, or I think I stole your thunder. <laughs> Sorry. Did you say that? No. I said she wrote a hundred times better than oh, Virginia right. Woolf ever right, did. Right. That's, that's okay. I'm a Virginia Woolf hater. <laughs> I think we can uh, we can we can stake the Bookening's claim as a not slash a, misogynist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're misogynists. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And we love Jane Austen, but good yeah. grief. Virginia Woolf, what were you up to? We love Jane we Austen. We love ladies. Right. Yeah, we love ladies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Old-fashioned ladies. We're ladies' right. men. Right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that then brings us to one other point about society at the time that's probably useful to understand the situation of education at the time. Primary schools... They existed. They weren't there for just everyone. But you had these schools that were largely based, that came out of usually Christian charities, would be set up in small rural towns. Like uh, Harriet's Boarding School. Yeah, that's what I was getting towards. Yeah. So Harriet's Boarding School would have been one of these. And so Harriet, she had no known father or mother was brought there as an orphan, but she was raised and she, they had a, a school mistress who taught them the practical things that they needed to know and nothing more. And that was fine. For those who were in the right spheres, you would have the college. You could, you could go to college or for women. And even for some young men, you could hire a governess to come in and teach. Wealthier families could hire like a French governess or someone who had someone who had even more experience and could come and teach them Latin and could teach them how to play music. Um, and so these things, like the home studies that the governess would teach you, they would be the things that then you see the proficient women being very good at. And you see that on display at the party when Jane and Emma are both asked to play the piano. And so these were things that every young lady would have been expected to do. They would be able to draw, they would be able to play the piano, they would know how to read French, and they would know the other basics that their governors had taught them. And this was a marker of society. And so there were just a lot of complex um, variables at play with British society at the time that are interesting backgrounds to understand kind of what's going on here. And so what's interesting about Jane, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, Jane Fairfax, is um, she had all these markers of high society and yet it was kind of closed to her, except for this one secret option, which is the big joke of the book. And then you have those like Miss Bates and Harriet, and they're playing, I think Jane is, Austin is really playing with ideas of nature there. Like some people are just meant to be in those spheres, which then makes you retrogressively, I think, go back and think about people like Lady Catherine, right? She, I think Jane very well could have been saying that even there, you have some people who by nature should never have been a lady, right? Mm -hmm. Lady Catherine probably deserved to be in the peasant class and just by birth happened to be a lady. um, In this novel, of course, the the villainous of the novel, Mrs. Elton. Yeah, she just got there because Mr. Elton's a big idiot. <laughs> a big idiot. <laughs> well, and she's she never actually understands where she fits. She she thinks so. Uh, her perspective of herself is so skewed. So mm. if you look at it's clear and it's established by Austin that she's well below Emma in terms of where she fits class-wise, but she has no perception of it. Yeah, and so... Austin, a lot like Tolstoy, has this keen mind where she's able to see the reality of the social fabric she's a part of and bring out its benefits, bring out and parody its evils in uh, ways that are clever and, I think, insightful. Because she comes to some interesting conclusions that I think that people who try to simplify it and say that she, oh, like she was bemoaning the fate of women. Secretly subverting the class. Yeah, you don't see, you really don't see any of that. No, you really no, she, don't. Right? And you also don't see her really bemoaning the social structure. What you see her bemoaning is the stupidity of people who don't understand their station, their place, their lot in life. And that, yeah. And that it really is more of a play. And so Mr. Knightley understands his position. Right. Yeah. And he takes it seriously. He sees himself in a position of responsibility and he then requires that same level of responsibility of Emma. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the great scenes of the book is when the great scene of the book and a possible candidate for the greatest scene of this year. When we get to our redux, I would say. Yeah. And so, I think Knightley is a good example of seeing the kind of attitude she admired in this particular, I don't want to say it again, society. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say social fabric again, even though I just said it again. Um, that he understands his position. He takes his position seriously with responsibility, and yet he doesn't lord it over. Like he, I think he actually sees Mr. Martin as an equal. He doesn't see him as inferior to himself, except that he wasn't born mm-hmm. to have his title. He's not all But like, he I'm, respects Mr. I'm gonna Martin. I'm going to elevate him. I have to. It's just... No, yeah. He, we he has none of this. different, but we're both, you know... Exactly. He has none of the so silly we immaturity. We have different roles in life. I, my responsibility is to help out people like Mr. Martin. You know, exactly. To, and so I respect him. I have a high regard for him. He belongs at the top of his class. And he, re- he deserves responsibility, and you can rely on this man. He can be trusted. But you're not going to nominate him for the House of Lords. Right. Right. <laughs> He's not made for it. Right. Which is, if he was Emma, he would have tried to do something stupid like that. Right. <laughs> and so, 
I think that this book, if we're just wanting to put a plug in for why young men should read it, it's really helpful for a young man to understand early on that overreaching is just stupid. Mm -hmm. You learn to deal, you learn responsibility and let other men around you as you work help you see what your role in life is. And then don't get bitter about it and just do the work you've been given to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times other men are going to have more perceptiveness about it than you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I have, do you have anything else you wanted to? No. I have some fun notes from a, the memoir of Jane Austen by Jane Austen Lay, her nephew, which was published in 1869. And they say it's the, one of the primary sources of Austen's popularity actually, that the elites read her before this, but her nephew and her family kind of realized that people were taking some notice of her. So they said, oh, we've got to, you know, get a biography together before everyone that remembers her died. This was after her sister, her beloved sister, Cassandra, was already dead and had already burned a lot of their correspondence. And there's the mysterious letters that we'll never know because Cassandra didn't want us to see them. What dark secrets did Jane Austen have? But her nephew wrote a very uh, glowing memoir of her, which is responsible for a lot of how people understood her until the the 20th century, really, when modern critics decided that she was a, you know, a feminist, proto-feminist, proto-socialist, proto-someone subverting, someone that hated every one of her characters. People decided that they knew better than, and the thing about her nephew is that everybody says that he just wrote the biography to kind of whitewash it and because he was so close to her because he was a member of the family therefore he couldn't have actually told the truth which i just think that logic is so backwards makes so much sense so backwards yeah some modern 20th century psychiatrist can obviously tell us more about jane austen than the person who actually knew her it wouldn't make any sense for us to write jake's biography no 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 we would need to go we're biased yeah yeah. we need to go find so we can't write his biography we need to go find like some guy on twitter yeah or an academic over at the university or something who would really years in the future right yeah who would really understand jake's motives right and so we'd be able to read between the lines <laughs> yeah. and find all the things that jake was discontent about that he didn't want to actually mention in his letters and there was those emails i deleted of jake well obviously that was where he revealed the great love affair that he had um that i didn't want the world to <laughs> i didn't want the world to know about because it would tarnish his character yeah yeah um, what I'm trying to say is that everyone is dumb that's not on the booking, except for James James Austin Lay. And, and you, dear listener. And you, you, dear oh, listener. yes, you, dear listener. I should say everyone's dumb that is not on the booking, listens to the booking, or... Likes and follows Warhorn Media. Likes and follows warhornmedia.com on the various social media platforms on which we are so wonderfully engaged. Uh, but James Austin Lay's memoir, published in 1869, has some really fun stuff I thought I'd just bring in. This is a, a note about Jane Austen that I thought was kind of fun, just, just kind of makes you like her. Um, although I'm sure James Austin Lay is lying about it to make us like her because he's biased because he actually knew her and loved her. Um, <clears throat> quote, she said that she thought it quite fair to note peculiarities and weaknesses but that it was her desire to create not to reproduce so when people asked her if her characters were based on anything she would just say no i'd rather create than produce quote i am too proud of my gentlemen to admit that they are that they were only mr a or colonel b she did not however suppose that her imaginary characters were of a higher order than are to be found in nature for she said when speaking of her two great favorites edmund bertram and mr knightley they are very far from being what i know english gentlemen often are so she actually, as great as Mr. Knightley is and as an ideal of a hero as he is, she actually was enough of an optimist and not cynic to say there's English gentlemen out there that are even better than Mr. Knightley. And then another fun quote that I just thought illuminated a little bit of Austin's personality. She certainly took a kind quote, she certainly took a kind of parental interest in her the beings whom she created and did not dismiss them from her thoughts when she finished her last chapter. Um, we have seen in one of her letters her personal affection for Darcy and Elizabeth, and when sending a copy of Emma to a friend whose daughter had been lately born, she wrote thus, I trust you will be as glad to see my Emma as I shall be to see your Jemima. She was very fond of Emma, but did not reckon on her being a general favorite. For when commencing the work, she said, I am going to take a heroine who no one but myself will much like. She would, if asked, tell us many little particulars about the subsequent career of some of the people. In this way, we learned that Miss Steele never succeeded in catching the doctor, that Kitty Bennett was satisfactory. We can, we're actually going to get some follow-up, guys, on what Whoa, happened to the Pride nice. and Prejudice. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah. She's like, Dumbledore is gay. and Oh, um, boy. Hopefully she does a better job of uh, telling us what happens than uh, J.K. Rowling has. Um, 
Harry Mr. Potter Bennett slam. killed himself. <laughs> Mr. Potter. No, actually, I think it turned out pretty well. Uh, let's see here. Kitty Bennett was satisfactorily married to the clergyman near Pemberley, while Mary obtained nothing higher than one of her Uncle Philip's clerks and was content <laughs> to be considered a star in the society of Meryton. Um... Let's see, there's some stuff about books that we haven't read yet. But we do find out about Emma that Mr. Woodhouse survived his daughter's marriage and kept her and Mr. Knightley from settling at Donwell about two years and that the letter placed by Frank Churchill before Jane Fairfax, which we swept away unread, which we did never find out what that letter said, but we know that Jane Austen knew and it just simply contained the word pardon <laughs> so there you go Sweet. Yeah. yeah she she loved her characters she treated them like kids that is something you see with a lot of the really great authors is that their characters take on a life even outside the novels so dickens would always talk about his characters and how <laughs> there are other exploits that he didn't yeah, have time to they, write down they <laughs> continue to live outside his books yeah, so. I think that's fun that you could, if Jane Austen was alive today, you could be like, well, how did uh, Darcy and Lizzie get on? And she'd be able to tell you how many kids they had and all that kind of stuff. I know. And, about, and was that about death at Pemberley? Death at Pemberley. Yeah, yes. I thought that, uh, mysteries uh, Agatha that they Christie already told us that. Or. <laughs> P- uh, PD uh, was it PD James? PD James, James, yeah, okay. PD James. Um, so I thought, and uh, I just uh, liked to see that uh, Mr. Knightley was in fact her favorite gentleman. She clearly had a type, and. Uh, I think Mr. Knightley is it. So if you want to know how you could have attracted Jane Austen, if you're me and you're planning on building a time machine and going back and doing just that, then you need to be like Mr. Knightley. But I think that ends our... Start the Rocky training montage. All right, Jake, what's Emma about? What's the like? Can you just? <coughs> Brandon's wife told us we have to recap the novel, folks. So well, she's seen this movie. Oh, she's seen the movie. Yeah. Oh, we don't have to, to recap. We don't have to recap. Well, can you do it? Can you recap it in like three sentences? Um, class, condescension, and maturation. How's that? Three words. Three words. I wish they were all C's. Class, condensation. Condensation. It's condensation. Class, condensation. The two sides. Uh, so class, what we've talked about already a little bit, condescension, the two sides of it. There, there are two sides of condescension presented, and I'm sure you're itching to talk about it probably later. But there's Emma's condescending behavior, which I mean pejoratively. The way um, that we mostly use the, the word The way that we mostly use it today. And then there's Mr. Knightley's noble condescension. Yeah. And then maturity. We see Emma uh, mature. Yes, this is one of Brandon's uh, buildings roman. Or, it's the closest yeah. thing that uh, I, you know, we, I've seen so far. <laughs> To a real coming of age mm-hmm. type of in our novels, I mean, you could argue for uh, Huck, maybe. You could argue for Huck. You could Not argue really. for East of Eden. At least it has a coming of age section with Cal and Aaron. Yeah, yeah. And you could argue for Pride and Prejudice with Lizzie and Darcy to a certain extent. Maybe. But that's less coming of age and more of I was an idiot and didn't see. It. It's not. Uh, Lizzie gets humbled. Right. Emma matures. Right. And the, uh, there's a distinction there. And of course, you know, Emma has to be humbled in order to, to mature, but there's something else going on with Emma that I don't think is going on so much with Lizzie. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. So this is our first true coming of age novel. And what we have to decide, fellas, I'm just going to throw out this, uh, what's the word? Cliffhanger for the for the listener. We have, by At the end of our discussion, we are going to decide whether Emma Woodhouse belongs in our League of Monsters. Uh-oh. But we have to get through our whole discussion first what are you gonna say say? i think i know what i'm gonna say i think i know what i'm gonna say um (coughs) and then and we are talking specifically about emma woodhouse and not emma knightley i suppose although we can argue that when we when we get there how those two those two characters (coughs) interact with each other and what they teach us about each other we should also just say are there any other candidates from this book well twitter wanted us to decide whether mr woodhouse was a monster we should save that to the end too save that for the end somebody asked that yeah eric wilson shout out to eric wilson he wants to know is mr woodhouse a monster also shout out to uh joe banks well yeah shout out to joe banks he's awesome Oh, here it is. Shout out to Christopher Davey. But Christopher, thank you for listening, and um, thank you for agreeing with us after telling we, us we suck. Oh, and we also, guys, shout out to Kara Wigner, who's or no, uh, Kara Hobbs, who's listening to this. She said she will stop listening if we nominate Emma to our Monster Squad. Oh boy! So. <laughs> 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 okay, let's talk about Emma. We're, we, we're not going to decide whether she's a monster yet, but let's just talk this this gal through. <coughs> after Jake dies, um, 
Uh, let's just start with Emma at the beginning of the novel. Is she just a... Uh... A monster? <laughs> Is she just a terrible person? I'll tell you that I had... I don't know that I've had so much difficulty starting and getting into a novel that we have read for this show as I have with Emma because I simply did not like Emma. It was just obnoxious to me. For probably the first six to eight chapters, it was just... I didn't want to read because I, I, I didn't like Emma. I didn't care about Emma. And I, I was frustrated with Austin for not giving me something to like or a reason to keep reading. That's how I felt for probably the first six to eight chapters of the book. So, yes, no, Emma, Emma is not likable at the beginning of the novel. How's that? There That's you go. The answer. <laughs> That's the answer. Brandon? Yeah, she's she's not likable. She's pretty quickly established, and M, uh, Jane Austen herself admitted that she's hard to like, right? Well, yeah, Austen. that quote that you read was was validating. Yes. <laughs> I was like, no, yes, not. you succeeded. You yeah. wrote a character that I did not like, and you meant to do it. That makes me feel great. <laughs> Yeah, and so she's a spoiled brat. She's only been told good things by a father who himself is just full of self-pity and anxiety and neuroses. She has had a governess who she's always felt superior to and has largely babied. And so, of course, she's become who she is at the beginning of the novel, which is this girl who thinks that she can make any fantasy reality and direct her life as she chooses. So self-satisfied yeah. in her perceptions of the world and her ability to just yeah. maneuver people into marriage and into the only classes. Th- and The only thing that gives me pause and makes me think that there has to be some s- virtue with her at the beginning is the fact that we know that Mr. Knightley has loved her for so long. Yeah. Well, what we understand about Mr. Knightley is that he just, he has a wisdom about him that's just, yeah. he sees, he knows, he sees, what What are you laughing about? He loves 13-year-old girls. <laughs> also, too. he loves 13-year-old girls. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> We're not going to be able to He's leave 20, that undiscussed. He was 20, 29 at the time. They're 16 years apart. Yeah. So, but, but he, okay. But he he saw who Emma could become. Yeah. And he was patient and he watched and he waited and he did his best to shepherd her into maturity and from a distance. And that's actually pointing that out is again back to my point about her doing these subtle parallels. Right there, Mr. Knightley does with her what she should have done with everyone else. That's right. So what do you mean? What, like you said, he done? shepherds her oh, into maturity she, yes. and waits patiently instead of pushing her into unrealistic. His He was condescending to her, understanding of her frame, understanding mm. of where she was in life, understanding her true potential, and therefore... And, you know, we get that discussion at the end of the book of, I probably should have just stayed a little more hands-off, you know? I probably shouldn't have been so... Uh, I probably could have let you go, it, but I've, I've kept feeling the need to step in and be the guy who disciplined you and tried to bring sense to you. Well, I think it speaks well of Mr. Knightley somehow that he really wasn't planning on asking her to marry him. He always had this kind of attraction, but, you know, he realized it was kind of, it's just at the very last minute when she, you know, he's gone on this trip and she says this thing and it just kind of gets dragged out of him that, yeah, why don't you marry me? You know, it's not. No, it's how it happens. You guys are both looking at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) Did did we read the same novel? Um, He's he says as much that he wasn't planning on making the proposal. I don't know how much we need to spend of this podcast mitigating any sort of creep factor, but I think that helps with the creep factor that he wasn't like, I'm just going to wait until Emma grows up and see whether she turns out okay, and then I'll marry that. If it's, yeah. I'll marry that. <laughs> I'm grooming her. Right, I'm grooming yeah. her, yeah. No, it's not what's going on. No, he's actually like, this is a girl he's known since childhood. He's always been something of a father figure to her. But then part of him is like, eh, maybe. maybe." Always presented as a brother, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're very much equals in um, mind and temperament. They're able to do the witty banter with each other. You know, they, in in a similar way to Lizzie and Darcy, you feel that meeting of minds that, oh, there's no other two people in the novel that could possibly, you know, maybe Frank Churchill is like kind of a facsimile of that kind of thing. But they belong together just from that sort of romantic comedy they were made for each other kind of feeling is in there, I think. But yeah, Jane Austen straight up tells us uh, in the very first page of this novel, the real evils indeed of Emma's situation were the power of having rather too much of her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. These were the disadvantage which threatened Alloy to her many enjoyments. The danger, however, was at present so unperceived that they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her. Yeah, that perfectly sums her up. Yeah. 
Yep. She tells us exactly what we're dealing with. And it's it's hard to deal with at first. And it wasn't like, for me, it wasn't, um, you know, I don't have the patience for people like this. It's just, I didn't have the patience for, it was hard to have the patience for that first six to eight chapters of just yeah. as her showing us, Austin showing us over and over again how, yep, this is just what Emma's like. Yep, this is just what Emma's like. Yep, this is just what Emma's like. Okay. Yeah, and when you my, know that she's the main character and that's what you get to deal with for the rest of this novel. Yeah, it's a little disheartening at first. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. And Mr. Knightley shows up and he's like, yep, she's just like Austin said she yeah. was at the very beginning. <laughs> Let me give you a nice monologue right. summarizing <laughs> everything that's going on and everything we're showing you about her. Emma, you're terrible and you should change. And she's like, I'm not going to change. But but when it starts to become endearing to me is when you start to see Austin's hand in guiding Emma and you see how tongue-in-cheek Austin isn't handling Emma, it becomes very funny and comical. Yes. And then that's when it starts to get fun is once you see that you're supposed to see everything that's going on with Emma and everything that Emma's doing actually actually is really funny. Like Mm -hmm. she she doesn't see anything. Which is largely when Harriet comes into the story. Yeah, that's right. I think. And then it becomes like a early Frankenstein story. (laughs) Where the monster's like dying and mangled on the table. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think for me, the novel, I mean, obviously I've said gone on record as Jane Austen being one of my favorite novelists and this is one of her great works but it really is kind of a slog until you I think until I would go so far as to say until Mr. Elton proposes is when it really gets fun and starts to be funny because you start to be able to finally get the sort of God's eye view and be able to maintain a ironic distance and see the cracks in the walls that Emma's built up. And that's when it gets fun. Yeah. Once I would say, yeah, right around the time of the painting. Yes. Well, you, you, you start to see, okay, she has no idea that she is wooing Mr. Elton and feeding and he is in love with her and he's going to propose to her you just start to wait for it and everything from that moment just becomes comical because here she is unwittingly feeding his hopes it's just yeah yeah, I think you're right I guess I should ask well I should ask two things first of all uh, do you think that most people listening to this will agree with us that Emma's an obnoxious character or are we like a patriarchal uh, I I think that if you don't understand Emma to to be obnoxious especially at the beginning then you don't understand the book you don't understand Emma's journey you can't appreciate Emma's resolution. Mm-hmm. You, the whole point of driving home how obnoxious Emma is is to make it awesome when Emma's redeemed and Emma matures and grows up. So if you're unwilling to see that, then you don't get it and you don't deserve to to consider Emma to be a, a favorite book of yours. <laughs> yeah. You, just, you, don't, you, don't, you probably should be worried about your personality. Yeah, yeah no kidding. <laughs> like if you can't see Emma's flaws, then I don't know, man. If yeah. Emma's not a little annoying to you, like, I don't know. You got to, you have to, I think you have to treat Emma at the beginning of the book the way that Knightley tells Emma she should have treated uh, Miss Bates. That, you know, it's... it's what is good and what is foolish are... She's like, she's like, you know, Emma has that, yeah, Emma has that thing of, well, you have to admit that she's very foolish and it's so ridiculous, like, it couldn't help but say it. Like, yeah. you have to have that approach with Emma that, yeah, she's that foolish and that ridiculous from the beginning. But you have to be able to, to sit back and watch and wait and remember what I had to keep reminding myself is remember you're dealing with a 21-year-old girl here. Yeah. And remember your college students, Jake, when you were a college pastor. Because <laughs> 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 w- w- when I in- encounter having been set up by Pride and Prejudice and having come to Emma, not having read Emma or having watched any Emma movies, which I still haven't. I expect an Austin heroine to be, you know, awesome, to be ahead of me, to be like, wow, you know. I expect, I I was expecting, okay, Emma's going to be some kind of like every man's dream girl or something like that. And uh, so remember, she's 21. The The book is obviously about how she has to be humbled and has to mature. Which in some ways, I think, makes us a candidate for being a more mature novel than Pride and Prejudice. Because the characters in Pride and Prejudice, while they're great, are a little less realistic mm-hmm. in their age. Because, I mean, she and Lizzie are about the same age. Right, right. exactly the same age. I mean, Lizzie yeah. might be 20 instead of 21. Right. Um, and so as great but as Lizzie this... is so far ahead of Emma. Yeah. Right. Which it happens. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you know, Emma was spoiled and Lizzie wasn't. Yeah. L- Lizzie had reason to be, Lizzie was required to mature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And you you can look at, at Emma and you can take her natural gifts and abilities and you could stick her in the Bennett family and imagine her being a, a Lizzie type mm-hmm. figure pretty easily, I think. And you could take Lizzie and put her in, in a place where she doesn't have her sisters or her mother or Donald Sutherland as her father. And yeah. <laughs> I mean... It's really easy to like Pride and Prejudice a lot more than this novel because the romance is much more sweeping and you just like Lizzie and Darcy. But I, I agree with Brandon. In some ways, I think this is a mature work. I mean, it's certainly more of a satirical comedy. It's it's a little bit more ironic than, than Pride and Prejudice was, Way I think. Way more tongue-in-cheek. Way more tongue-in-cheek. And so you have to approach it on that level if you're expecting the same sort of like romance that you felt in your bosom as you read um, scenes in Pride and Prejudice. It's, you're not going to get so much of that. But yeah... I mean, I think, I don't know. I don't know what I think. I like Mr. Knightley, what I think. Well, Knightley's a much more three-dimensional hero, I think, than Darcy. Yes, that's true. Darcy, in some sense, as I think we said in our Pride and Prejudice podcast, is Batman. I mean, he's just like, he's got all the wealth. He saves the girl. He does everything. And he's always, he's he's not a character that you're dealing with. He's always dealt with at a distance until he kind of comes in in the end. And, you know, you find out how awesome he actually is after all. Yeah, and you see Mr. Knightley and you see his flaws. He's moody. He's mm-hmm. not the hap, you know, he's not He can almost sulk a little bit yeah. or, you know. I mean, you see his traits like magnified in his brother, mm-hmm. but he has some of the same stuff. He'd rather not be at parties. He's He's not going to dance yeah, if he not, is yeah. unless he has a good reason to. Yeah. And then that's where you see his virtues start to come out too. Yeah. He's so. not going to be moved to dance or participate. He'd rather be by himself until there's Yeah. until his compassion moves him. Yeah, so he's principled, which mm-hmm. is a virtue she admires. But his Yeah, his principles also his principles overcome his personality I guess he's quite a bit which like, is something that I think that she especially admires in yeah, a man I'd, I think Jane Austen would have liked Levin yeah yeah I think so too Levin at his mature tourist perhaps yeah. um, but he's um, got some similar qualities to Levin mm-hmm. yeah I mean he's he's real I mean what Jane Austen seems to not like in a man or at least to find very suspect is that Frank Churchill quality of sort of even though Jane Austen's great with the jokes and the banter and Emma and Knightley have plenty of them there's something not serious some lack of weight in someone like churchill or someone even worse like wickham part of the gravity of her heroes is that they are always under promising and over delivering Mm. and her villains are always (laughs) over promising and under delivering they're they're flashy they come out with a bang and they they're impressive and turns out that there's not much more to them than the flash and bang and there's a little more to frank churchill than flash and bang and she'll she'll give him that but but she really wants to contrast him with somebody who is who has who's the iceberg you know yeah there's always much more underneath the surface that's the kind of man that she likes to set up the iceberg right (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i think she likes principled men and um i think she'd probably be uh, i think we could allow for darcy or knightley to be a little stodgy or a little you know quick to judge well i think that I think she likes a, a Bingley type too, but I think part of it may just be that she finds it easy to demonstrate the virtue of a principled man by giving him kind of character and personality flaws that he has to work to overcome in order to embrace his principles. So she's going to take a guy who is naturally antisocial and put him at a dance and make him have to dance with Harriet out of as a principle of caring for this woman. Yeah, you know. So here's his here's his character and his personality here's a situation that's antithetical to his personality and watch him overcome himself. Yep. She likes to do that kind of thing a lot. What Mr. Bingley might have danced with Harriet anyway without ever thinking about right. it because he's just a sweet, gregarious guy. And you don't see his principles at work in something like that. But you get the impression with someone like Frank Churchill that his principles should have helped him overcome his situation in a way that yeah. they didn't somehow. That's that- right. Yeah, so there's a flaw with Frank Churchill that there's not with... With Mr. Knightley. Mr. Knightley or Darcy. Or Darcy, yeah. Yeah. Breeding in class starts with principles. Yes. Not with the flourishes, not with the heirs of class. Mm -hmm. And I think Jane Austen had a really good grasp on what 
the virtues of being a man and the virtues of being a woman were Mm -hmm. or are it's like you said that directness that taking responsibility taking the initiative Mm -hmm. to overcome your stupid self and just go do what should be done and he doesn't doesn't seem to have trouble with it actually it's no Knightley's just a dude yeah he's just awesome yeah you know Miss Bates is going to be insulted so he's going to take care of her Harriet's going to be slighted so he's going to take care of her and he's going to shame everybody else yeah he does it and he's and it's he's not going to bat an eye about it and that scene and also the scene where he calls up the carriage for Miss Bates yeah and all that I think it does the work that the whole like helping the Bennets with their tragedy does for Darcy yeah Mm -hmm. which is another point I think just about the difference I guess in the art that's Mm -hmm. going on like you said Pride and Prejudice is more sweeping and Emma is more it's toned down Mm mm-hmm yeah. So we keep going. I might convince myself I like Emma better. I think I kind of do, but um, I'm not sure. We'll, 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 maybe we'll yeah. maybe we'll save that. I don't know. I might. I certainly. And this this may speak more of just the the way my life is right now. I, if I'm going to pick up one of the two of them again, I'm probably going to pick up Pride and Prejudice. But that's not because I don't think that has anything to do with my value of the story. Mm-hmm. And it has more to do with just my desire for something easy. Right. <laughs> Pride and Prejudice is easy. The setups and payoffs just simply take up take longer in Emma, and there's less immediate gratification, which makes it a more difficult novel. But in Pride and Prejudice, you're getting gratification all along the way. Like the first chapter, you've got two or three hilarious lines, and Mr. Bennett's, you know, funny. And yeah, it's, it's a nice comedy. It pulls you through it. It's got its painful scenes and moments. Well, I guess we're talking about Mr. Knightley now. Um, I realized we never did our, uh, what's that thing? Baggage never, check. We never talked about our baggage check. With horror, our heroes realized they had never completed their baggage check. Would there be time to complete it before the episode came to an end? No. No, there wouldn't be. Actually, this is not the introduction. This is the end. And so I'm going to tell you that I, like Jane Austen was the author of Emma, I'm kind of like that. I'm the author of this podcast. And just like Emma and Mr. Knightley were two wonderful characters in the in, in the novel, Jacob Benzel and Brandon Chastain are two, two wonderful characters that I created. Who are fictions created by and masterminded by, guided by the providential hand of... One Nathan Nathan Aaron Alberson. It'd be a twist. This is sham along like twist. (laughs) This has all just been Nathan talking. (laughs) It's all actually happening in his head. You're not actually listening to this. You too are one of the characters. (laughs) (laughs) It's all happening in my head. Well, that's not true, folks. I'm not actually doing the voices of Jake Menzel or Brandon Chastain. We hired actors to do that. I wrote the script. We all act like it's improvised. It's pretty amazing what I do on a weekly basis for this podcast. And uh, if you want to enjoy more things that I have influence over, go to warhornmedia.com. Go to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and look up Warhorn Media at Warhorn Media on all three of those wonderful social media services. You can also find me on Twitter as at NotFamousNathan. You can find Jacob Menzel who I will now reveal in a twist on the twist is real. Or maybe I just maintain his Twitter account, Facebook account. Yeah, maybe I just maintain him on the handsomest picture I could put him on there. Um, Brandon Chastain is also here. He performs on the booking. We're glad to have him. We're glad to have him. Nathan's alarm starts sounding and he wakes up. <laughs> <laughs>